there, Dreamfinder here. <clears throat> Sorry, Ron Schneider here, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 26 of Stories of the Magic. Or maybe I should say welcome back, since it's been a while. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to each new episode. I'm getting them out as frequently as I can, but coordinating schedules for interviews makes it a bit of a challenge. Of course, if you want to hear new episodes more often, you can help by either contacting me to be a guest on the show, if you've worked for Disney, sending in your stories and thank yous to cast members, Imagineers, and so on, if you're a Disney fan, or contacting people you know who might be good guests and suggesting that they get in touch with me. The more I have to work with, the more often you'll get new episodes. There was also a health emergency at home during the last couple of weeks that delayed things a bit, but just stay subscribed and you'll get all the new episodes as they're released, and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash stories of the magic to keep up to date on what's happening with the show. In this episode, I get to talk to a Disney Imagineer for the first time. Mark Hickson started on Splash Mountain at Disneyland and went on from there to work on several special projects at Tokyo Disneyland, including Splash Mountain there, Epcot, and special projects involving the Disney Store, Beauty and the Beast on Broadway, and more. Since working for Disney, Mark has created the Disney by Mark family of websites, and you'll get to hear about that in part two. But in this episode, part one of the interview, Mark shares how he got hired by Walt Disney Imagineering, what it was like coming in mid-project on Splash Mountain, and some of the unique challenges they encountered. Working on multiple projects for Tokyo, moving on to Epcot, what it was like to be involved in the creation of Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, WDI being approached with special projects, and a hint of an idea they came up with for Disneyland's 35th birthday. Hear the rest of that story in part two. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to remind you of the sweepstakes I told you about last time. As you may recall from previous episodes, I'm a travel agent. Well, my agency has announced a fantastic and exclusive sweepstakes. If you're a Disney fan, and since you're listening to this podcast, you probably are, you have got to get in on this. Enter for a chance to win an unforgettable Disneyland Resort vacation. The sweepstakes prize includes four five-day Disneyland Park Hopper tickets, accommodations for up to four people for three nights in one standard room at a Disneyland Resort hotel of Disney's choosing, Disneyland Resort Express transfers to and from LAX or John Wayne Airport for four people, choice of one Disneyland Resort guided tour for four people, and one night in the Disneyland Dream Suite for up to six guests plus a collection of incredible surprises as part of your dream suite stay. Now, you might notice all the other prizes or parts of the prize are for four people, and that one's for six. So if you want to bring a couple of other people along for that that live in the area, maybe the host of one of your favorite podcasts, for example, uh, I wouldn't be opposed to that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
but unless you really want to do that, in which case, please feel free. Uh, this is a simply incredible prize. All you have to do to enter is sign up for our free newsletter, and you'll have a chance to win that unforgettable Disneyland Resort vacation. Just go to storiesofthemagic.com slash Disneyland Sweeps with an S at the end. That's Disneyland Sweeps to sign up and enter. You only have until March 31st, so don't delay. I almost added Visit Indoor today, but I stopped myself. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and start this story. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're We're huge huge Disneyland Disneyland fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures, and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort, or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www.talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make make it it a a Mickey Mickey day. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. I'm very excited today to welcome my very first Imagineer to Stories of the Magic. Mark Hickson started on the Splash Mountain Critter Country Project at Disneyland, then was chosen to become part of the Tokyo Disneyland Project office, where he was involved in Tokyo Disney Seas and Disney's Hollywood Studios, as well as a dozen or so specific projects. He also worked on Spaceship Earth's main show, Change Out, and the AT&T Post show, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, the Epcot Interactive Fountain and Communicore Fountain, and I love fountains, so that was really special to me, and various other special projects like the Broadway production of Beauty and the Beast and more. Since working for Disney, Mark has created the Disney by Mark website, offering a unique look at Disney that only a former Imagineer can share. The website features news, stories, and editorials about the Walt Disney Company and its subsidiaries, as well as consumer products, film, television, theme park, resort, and dining reviews. It's an interesting and highly informative website that's high on my blog reading list every day. Mark, welcome to Stories of the Magic. Well, uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So as we get started, can you tell me how you got started working for Disney and what you did there? Well, actually, it was um, a bit of an unusual story. Is A former team member of mine, when I was working doing a satellite program at a company called TRW, um, his wife actually worked for Disney, and she got him a job uh, over at Imagineering as a junior scheduler. And um, some time went on, and then uh, I get a, uh, a card in the mail, an oversized uh, postcard, and it's Mickey Mouse, and it says, we want to talk to you. Hmm. And uh, it turns out that um, he actually recommended uh, me to some people there. Next thing you know, I'm uh, Imagineer, I think, uh, uh, three weeks later. Yeah. I gave a two-week wow. notice, and then I took a week vacation, and I uh, got shipped off to Splash Mountain at Disneyland. 
<laughs> That's interesting. So but you really, didn't actually apply. No, I didn't apply. I'd actually I'd applied many times through the years and um never got accepted. Uh, except, you know, uh, thank you very much. We have your resume and we'll call you if we're interested. And um I gave up. It was like, well, you know, uh, there's other things in life and uh time to move on and I I was very very happy at the job that I had uh, and I was in the space program and uh, involved in really cool space stuff, you know, hmm. and um, I thought I'd stay there forever. So this is an unexpected calling, I guess, uh, would be a good way to say it. Yeah, it sounds like it. How long had it been, do you remember, since you had last applied there? Oh, wow. It was probably oh, a good five years prior to that. So it had been a really long time. I can see why you just sort of put it out of your mind by then. Yeah, um, you know, I think I probably applied, you know, four or five, you know, times at, at different times through my 20s and, and early 30s. And, uh, you know, I just basically, went, you know, it's not meant to be, and that was it. You know, I moved on. But uh, hmm. uh, funny, funny what uh, life uh, sends your way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so let me ask you, when uh, when they called you in for that interview, did it sound like they had you in mind for a specific project? Or... Yeah, specifically for Splash Mountain. Um, it, it was a very, very complex series of problems. Um, uh, a few of them I'm not uh, at liberty to talk about. But basically sure. I, was, I was brought in uh, to solve some problems and shore up um, to the project management side of uh, uh, of the whole project in itself, and uh, they had um, started um, uh, erecting steel on the site. We were just like a couple of months away from uh, actual rock work starting to take place. So that is the time that I walked into uh, Disneyland Slash. Oh wow! So things had already even started to go vertical, and you were brought in to kind of problem solve some things before it got too far along in the process. It sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, it was a uh, wow, it was a baptism under fire. I'd have to say, uh, I I had no um, reference point like a lot of other projects I did after uh, Splash. I started at the very beginning, and I understood you know everything from the blue sky creation and the storylines and and everything else all the way through to the design and um, the installation of not only the uh, the show, but also the facility. Um, but here I was just like thrust right into the middle. A lot of decisions had already been made, you know. Um, it was a very, very complex uh, uh, show, and I had to figure out where everything was and who was doing everything, and it was a, it was a real challenge. But uh, uh, I spent uh, many, many hours there. I, uh, I lived down Catella, Catella, if um, you're familiar with uh, Orange County, is uh, one of the main crossroads there that, that goes to uh, Disneyland. And um, Disneyland's really at Catella and uh, Harbor Boulevard. Those are the two main intersections there. And I would drive in from my home, which was a block off of Catella in Long Beach, um, and I was at work in um, 13 or 17 minutes, depending upon the lights. And wow. uh, I said, I spent a lot of time there. I'd go home, I'd eat dinner, and I'd come right back because we were going uh, 24 hours a day uh, when we reached a certain um, uh, part of the construction. We 
were doing major uh, things after park hours. So the guests wouldn't be hearing the really loud noises or a lot of uh, a welding. Um, there was an awful lot of welding that was taking place up on the mountain. And you really literally um, couldn't shield it from everybody. And you didn't want guests to, and guests will uh, stare at a welder. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So <laughs> all that major uh, major welding that couldn't be like shielded uh, from the guests, we would have to do after after park hours. So it was um, a twenty four hour a day job. Turned out. But wow. I was I was just so uh, ecstatic to be able to uh, be there and and you know work in the park that I grew up in and be able to do things like be backstage, you know, and. Uh, you know, that was just um, a really great uh, beginning experience. But it was very stressful, too, though. Oh, I can only imagine. So, But at least it sounds like it was a relatively short-term project, but probably several months from when you got brought in to when Splash Mountain opened. No, it was there a year and a half. Oh, okay. So Splash went, Mountain they started was, rock work sooner than I thought. Okay. No, Splash Mountain was late. <laughs> right. Yeah, I do remember there were delays. Yeah, it was it was really late uh, when we actually started to uh, run water in the flume. Uh, something happened that no one expected. Um, you remember the movie um, with Chuck Yeager? He's uh, up there in the rocket plane and he's uh, breaking the sound barrier. And uh, yeah, and everything starts shaking and you know things start going crazy and people are freaking out, um, including Chuck Yeager. <laughs> right. <laughs> because when they broke the sound barrier, things happened that they didn't expect. Okay. They didn't plan for it. They didn't know what was going to happen. And then when sure. he finally got down and he explained all this stuff, they went, oh, gosh, we got to go back to the drawing board, you know. When we started dropping boats off with a big drop, we did the equivalent. We broke the water barrier. <laughs> okay. Um, no one had ever dropped a, a log <laughs> down a flume as high or as fast as what we did. And uh, what happened was is the water didn't do what it was supposed to do. Really? Yeah, in the normal flume uh, ride, the, the water spreads off to the side, okay? It helps break you, but it also splashes off to the side. When we hit it, what it did was we hit it so hard and so fast that the water vaporized and shot straight up. And completely soaked everybody to the bone. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's not what was intended. No, not at all. And uh, there was an awful lot of jaws <laughs> and a lot of very, very wet people going, what just happened here? You know? <laughs> right. Um, we designed this thing. You know, we had the experts. We've done the homework, the whole bit, you know, but the water just didn't behave like Everyone thought it would. Hmm. So that that was um, one of the contributing factors to the delay of um, the opening because well, we, we were supposed to open in April or was it February? Anyway, we were uh, we were months late trying to re-engineer the drop and the runoff uh, to make um, make it to where guests uh, didn't have to wear parkas, you know. Right. So did you have to re-angle the slope or? No, actually, with the bottom, how'd you do that? It was a series of design tweaks that basically what we decided to do was go back 
and build a scale mock-up of the drop and the boat and to film it and uh, and see what's what's happening and what type of design changes we can do either to uh, the run out, especially the front end of the boat. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay. you know, through, uh, you know, the ride engineers, they, they're really great engineers, but this is a brand new pro- uh, problem. Uh, so they had to in- invent some uh, new ways of looking at, at this and, and implemented those fixes. And finally, after many weeks, we got it to the point where the amount of water was acceptable. Mm-hmm. But I, I must have rode down well over 100 times down that big draw. And, uh, wow. Yeah, and <laughs> I would uh, I would leave my wallet in my desk <laughs> in, in the construction trailer, right? <laughs> and um, I had a black uh, WDI uh, jacket, and uh, basically would just zip that all the way up as far as I I could. And of course, I had to wear my hard hat. And then uh, uh, myself and, and some others, we were uh, human sandbags. <laughs> Because the boat had to have weight in it, and um, sure. and we had to be able to distribute it differently. And and sandbags are cool, uh, and they do a lot, a lot of work. Um, but uh, the thing about the human interface is, uh, a sandbag won't come back to you and tell you what it saw. Right. And so you know, having real people in 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 logs when we were doing all this testing uh, was really uh, important. Yeah, that makes sense. But we got okay. we got it open. And it's, it's yeah. a fantastic attraction. It is. It's classic, and it's it's one of those, not just classic in that it's been around for a while and people love it, but it's got the story and uh, the storytelling to it, not just a backstory, but the storytelling as you go through the attraction that I think really does make it a classic Disney attraction. Even though when we were going through all of this, this um, uh, re-engineering, uh, our friends at the Oriental Land Company, uh, Tokyo Disneyland, they took uh, a look at, at Splash and they said, we want one too. But they wanted the log to uh, seat two by two, whereas Disneyland's Splash um, boat was one in front of the other. Right. So basically that necessitated um, a, a redesign of, of the log and making it wider uh, because they didn't want... Um, Ladies in kimonos having to straddle that centerline bench thing uh, that we had in our original boat. They thought it was uh, not appropriate, so that's why. Mm-hmm. We, uh, and they took that same design and then they ended up using it that in Florida. Right. I was going to say they used that design then when it moved out to Florida. Okay. Interesting. Um, so was that part of how you got moved into the uh, Tokyo Disneyland project after finishing with Splash Mountain was because of the Splash Mountain also being out there? Yeah, precisely. Um, you know, it, it made sense that to be able to, you know, take people that had real hands-on experience, you know, with it to, to do the next one. And, and some other team members ended up uh, doing uh, Florida. Okay, interesting. So was it uh, a little bit easier coming into the one for Tokyo at the beginning and with the experience that you'd already had just working on the one for Anaheim? Yeah, completely uh, refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I think most importantly, um, we knew what not to do. Right. You, you always have that when you do um, the, a second installation of the same attraction. 
Sure, you've already seen a number of things that don't work. You probably discover some new things that don't work, but you've got at least a pretty long list of things that you know not to try this time. And um, so, but but we uh, at WDI had uh, a system of portfolios, and these portfolios were specific to the theme parks that um, people were assigned to. So originally, when I came aboard, I was in the California portfolio. Mm-hmm. The Disneyland portfolio. Right. Uh, okay. I got, I got moved to the Tokyo Disneyland portfolio. So when I moved over and started doing that, I ended up doing all projects that were uh, involved with Tokyo Disneyland, and um, other people. Then there was a a Florida portfolio, and then later on uh, there was the um, EDL portfolio, the Euro Disneyland portfolio. That's basically the way they kept uh, the teams organized. So. You didn't have that many people going and following an attraction from one place to another necessarily. And that's the reason why you see differences in, in some attractions between the theme parks, because you had different people uh, involved. Oh, okay. So even though you're working from maybe the same basic models or story treatments or plans or whatever, it's the individuals that are working in the different locations kind of bringing their own perspective and expertise and everything to it. And that introduces some of the differences. And I would imagine that the restrictions uh, or freedoms based on where they are, like, you know, Florida having more land space to work with, they can do things a little bit differently than maybe was is done at Disneyland. Well, in Tokyo, we built a whole critter country. We built a whole mountain range. Um, mm. yeah, it was a, a very large expansion where Florida – uh, they just found a footprint that they basically plopped the attraction down into. The um, Each one of those three Splash Mountains had uh, three different show producers. So you definitely had a, a different creative vision and, and, and a force behind each one. And so that's really, you know, why they're unique in their own, you know, respect. I have to say, though, uh, all in all, that um, uh, Tokyo Splash is probably the best of the three. Why is that? It's bigger. There's more show to it. It's it's actually the, the um, a lot of people don't know. It actually is the biggest drop in the world. It's, really? Yeah. Wow. It, it's actually bigger than Disneyland and, and uh, Walt Disney World. Hmm. They wanted it to be the biggest. <laughs> <laughs> so, Interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. Hmm. Uh, so, were you working on? Splash Mountain and other projects for Tokyo Disneyland at the same time, or did you kind of wrap one, go to the next one? How did that work? Well, it was all based on a lot of different factors. Working within a portfolio, you've got projects that are ongoing and you have projects in development. So I got involved uh, in in everything that was under development all the way through to show installation. And um, some things were... um, the small little projects like the Country Bear Jamboree uh, Christmas Show. Okay. Oh uh, yeah. That actually is a, a fairly small budget item, but it includes an awful lot of um, of show uh, development and uh, changes to programming and um, new music and you know new costuming, new props, and so that's like a you know small little mini project almost in, in itself. But then you have like the Treehouse, okay, where you're doing a, a full-up design for uh, a Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse in, in Venture Line over there. And it had to be designed 
for uh, the unique weather that they have at at, uh, TDL, Tokyo Disneyland, that you don't have, like in California or Florida. They they have snow, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, They have have typhoons. And so the the design of the uh, attraction had to change to suit the the local conditions. That makes sense. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, just like in Paris, they had to take into consideration there's an uh, it snows there also, so uh, you just can't put uh, something that was designed for California, Florida, and plop it in there. Because after a few years, um, let's just say the finishes might get ruined because of the uh, uh, temperature changes. Sure, yeah, makes sense. Okay. For Tokyo, we had to redesign the leaves. That's a, a good example. We had to make a really robust uh, leaf for the treehouse, and it was a different type of leaf. Uh, in shape and character than what they have, let's say, at Disneyland. Does it also attach differently to the branches, maybe a little more sturdy attachment? Well, you know, you, you learn the treehouse had, had been in since Walt uh, was was alive. And then right. they went through a couple of, a couple of uh, changes to, to the leaves because they're out there all the time, and ultraviolet light and heat and, and other things all come into play and start to degrade the plastics and the like. And, you know, we know they're not real leaves. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the maintenance people at um, Disneyland had a lot of input into uh, uh, making sure that that design would be something that would be easily maintainable. Hmm. Interesting. So of the projects that you worked on at Tokyo Disneyland, and like I mentioned in the intro, there was looked like about a dozen or so, the, yeah. at least ones that you had specifically mentioned. Uh, did you have a favorite project out there? Oh, the splash definitely was. Yeah, it, it was. It was nearest and dearest to my heart. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> it was also <laughs> the biggest one too. Yeah. Sure. So, and then what did you do at uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios out there? You're talking about Florida. No. Um. If I was reading correctly on your website, it had mentioned uh, working at the Hollywood Studios Second Gate for Tokyo. Oh no, that's Tokyo Disney Sea. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, it, it had always been Tokyo Disney Sea. They did not uh, want a studio uh, there. Tokyo Disney Sea went through a couple different versions before they ended up with the final one that ended up getting constructed. Okay. And, um, so I was involved in helping develop the 5, 10, and 20 year master plan for the park build out, and then also the, the very first version of Tokyo Disney Sea. I was involved in that. Um, okay. That is a really that that turns out actually that's the best theme park in the world. I've heard that from others too. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's really exceptional. It, it's it's everything that what a theme park should be, and um, you know I'm just uh, very very pleased to to see the outcome of it. Uh, even though I was only involved in the very beginning, uh, first version of it, it to to see how it all came out was just uh, uh, it's incredible. Mm. I would love to be able to get out there someday and be able to see it in person. I've heard it's the best. I've heard it's the most beautiful as well. Yeah, most definitely. Okay. Uh, now, when you did the 5, 10, and 20-year master plans, when you worked on that, had you done any kind of master planning like that before, or was that a new thing for you? No, it, um, it basically is um, doing the master plan is sitting down with a whole bunch of meetings with people and talking about what do we want to do, when do we want to do it, and how much is it going to cost, and then organizing it mm-hmm. into something that um, 
that is uh, achievable and, and, and meets the goals of uh, what the uh, park needs. And that is really the most important thing. You, you have to make sure that when you do things, uh, it's balanced. You, you have a, um, a capacity, uh, let's say, shortfall. You build a park, okay, and more people come. And you say, okay, I need to expand it. I need to add you know, more attractions to keep people's wait time down and, and keep them more you know, entertained, keep them in the park longer. Mm-hmm. But that also means you have to do merchandise and you have to do food service and restrooms and all the support facilities, too. It involves an awful lot of uh, discussions with uh, theme park operations, uh, merchandising, uh, maintenance people, especially important mm-hmm. to, to uh, determine, okay, um, what type of uh, numbers do we need um, to satisfy the, uh, the, the growth requirements of the park? And then what type of attractions potentially could uh, fit into it? What types of attractions, too? You know, you you have the old classic, uh, you know, A, B, C, D, and E ticket type of attraction. Well, you want to make sure that um, uh, you have a, a nice mix of, of different experiences for the guests. And not like not everything is an E ticket and not everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those decisions all have to be, you know, made and planned out. And then finally, um, we're able to get consensus and, and agreement that, yes, okay, um, this is the, the build-out program for 5, 10, 20 years. Okay. So that's what, that's what developing a master plan really is all about. It's a whole bunch of involved uh, discussions and an awful lot of arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I know that there was a number of unforeseen changes to the world stage from then to now, but from what you you can tell, have they stuck fairly closely to that master plan that you were involved in developing? I have to say pretty much so, because uh, part of that master plan was the inclusion of Tokyo Disney Sea. Okay. And uh, so, you know, there was a whole new park opening up. And uh, so if, if there wasn't a second gate opening up, um, Tokyo Disneyland Park itself probably would have been expanded uh, more than it would have if the second uh, gate didn't go in. That's so um, you have to take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. Also, you have to you have to stay within within the allocated budget for that fiscal year. Sure, I imagine that ends up driving a lot of the decisions. Is what kind of budget do we have to work with? Exactly, and since um, the relationship between uh, the Walt Disney Company and Oriental Land Company is such that you know, really, it's their budget, uh, the Japanese um, uh, company's budget. And um, so sometimes they, they um, uh, might want to have too little amount of money spent, and we would have to come back to them and say, look, no, you're going to have to do X because uh, that equals, you know, what our forecast is for the projected attendance. And if you do, if you spend this much money, you're going to make this much money. You know, it's pretty mm-hmm. involved pretty involved um, conversations that, that unlike in America, when you're doing business with Japanese, you have to understand the way they do business. It's a, more of a consensus building. Okay. Yeah, I'd imagine that's a very different way to approach doing business and decision-making than the way that we generally tend to do it. Yeah, we're more cowboys. You know, we shoot from the hip. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> 
uh, the Japanese don't. They build consensus. That's their that is their way of, of doing business. Mm-hmm. I have no um, experience dealing with the Chinese and, and how they they do it. I'm sure it's different. I know the French were different uh, when the EDL went in. Okay. Uh, now, after you finished at Tokyo Disneyland, uh, did you go on from there to work at Walt Disney World, or where did Walt Disney World fit into the mix? Yeah, actually, um, gee, after five years doing stuff for Tokyo, I felt it was time for a change and uh, volunteered myself to go work on the, the Florida projects. And um, I got involved in the uh, second show change out of Spaceship Earth. That was the first thing I got involved in, and also Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Uh, the Captain EO show change out. Mm-hmm. And what was it like then coming back to the U.S. and working on, you know, the Florida project from having been overseas for a few years and before that working on the original Magic Kingdom? Well, no, actually, I I think it's important to say I actually only business trip to Tokyo. Our creative core it, it was in Glendale, California, at Imagineering, and the only time you go over and actually stay there is when the actual attraction is going in. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so um, we would have part of our team members actually would get relocated, and the rest of us would go over every month for a, a week or two weeks since, or some people would go over for you know a short period of time to do what they had to do and then come back home because – California was home. That's where their families were and everything else. It's actually very expensive to pick somebody up and send them to a foreign country and put them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so it was actually easier for uh, for us. We would you know just go over there. They put us up into a you know nice hotel. We go do all of our meetings and stuff and our walkthroughs and, and everything, and then uh, go home. And then we would have um, regular you know, conference calls and, you know, weekly meetings with them. And um, and then they would also, um, their teams would come over here. That, that worked out pretty well. So, actually, I never had to live there. <laughs> I just would go on extended business trips. <laughs> okay. Were you happier that way? Well, my wife was. <laughs> <laughs> and so, by extension, so were you. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I grew in school and the whole bit, you know, um, uh, that can be quite uh, an experience for a family, but but it also um, uh, is disruptive to you know. Sure. When when you're ha- over in a foreign country, you know you you just can't go see grandma, you know. Right, right. So when you end up working on Walt Disney World, did you stay in Glendale for that, or did you actually go out to yeah, Florida? Yeah, I would go over and, and fly to Florida. Actually, going to Florida was qu- uh, quite easy. Uh, a lot of people did it. Basically, you'd get on a a red-eye flight out of Los Angeles and be there at 7 in the morning mm-hmm. the next day and, um, you know, do what you had to do. It, there was no problem with hotel accommodations. Uh, we'd just get put up in whatever room was available at, at any one of the uh, uh, resort hotels. The fun thing about that was is I actually got to stay at about every hotel on property and really got to experience a different feel of them all. Sure. Did you end up having a favorite from those? Well, actually, um, uh, the Yacht Club was my favorite. The Grand Floridian will really spoil you, though. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but the thing was, is the Grand Floridian was up at the uh, 
uh, Magic Kingdom, and I was doing Epcot stuff, so if uh, I was at uh, the Beach Club, I literally could just walk right over into Epcot. Right, sure. Yeah, so everything you did was at Epcot, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, everything was really convenient. Um, they were only doing work at Epcot at that time. They weren't doing any stuff at, uh, at the Magic Kingdom. Uh, the Studio Tour had already... Uh, was it open? I believe so. Yeah, it was open. That's right. Before I went over into the Florida portfolio. But um, okay. Florida is a great place to visit, but there's no way I'd live there. <laughs> it's, it's way too hot and humid. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> well, Disney World is great, but it gets really hot and really humid and really uncomfortable. So. <laughs> there's, there's only one really good time to go, and that's in March, April, uh, before the uh, spring break. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's when the weather is best and the crowds are, are, are the lowest. At Walt Disney World, there, the, the Epcot work that you did, it, it sounds like at least half of it was change-outs from existing versions of attractions to new versions, um, at least for Spaceship Earth, the main show, the post show, and then changing Captain EO out to Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Uh, did that produce, present similar challenges as uh, coming in kind of mid-project on Splash Mountain, or did it really kind of function as a new project that was just taking the place of an old one? It started as, a, like, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the, the Audience, Honey, I Shrunk the Theater, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. We had a couple different names to it before we actually opened it. Um, but it, it started with a brand-new storyline. Uh, Michael Jackson had some issues, and um, it was decided by uh, by corporate that the show Captain EO had to be replaced. And uh, so basically... The team was given a challenge. You have one year to do a brand new attraction. Oh wow! In the facility, in the facility. Okay, it's a theater, uh, you know, the 3D right. theater. Mm-hmm. And of course, want this movie tie-in with Honey I Shrunk the Kids, which um, uh, was a, a series of challenges. You know, um, uh, first of all, is you know writing a brand new script, deciding how you want to do this, how you're going to make a, a show around the movie. And um, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? What are you going to do to make people feel like they're in the middle of it, not being passive? You know, mm-hmm. it, you know, not just like going in and watching a, a circle rama show. You know, where you're just standing there and looking at stuff, or sitting there and looking at stuff. You know, we really wanted to have uh, some you know, real fun stuff. Right. And they opened up um, Muppet Vision uh, in Studio Tour. They had some brand new effects uh, that had been done before, and they wanted to continue with these fun gags and stuff, like uh, the dog sneeze uh, gag, which, mm-hmm. which you know, it feels like you just got snot blown all over you. <laughs> right. Or, or the rats running up underneath your feet effect. Okay. But the hardest one was we wanted to make everybody in the audience feel like they have shrunk. And then the, this little kid, right, uh, one of the family members, actually picks up the theater, okay, and is looking inside at, at all the people that are sitting in there. And, of course, you're, you're inside there. So it was decided that um, we needed to have um, uh, a motion base, but we couldn't do it like a, a Star Tours thing, you know. It would be um, incredibly expensive, and we would end up losing capacity if we tried to 
uh, move everybody in their own personal little motion base seat. So it was decided that we try to figure out how to move the whole floor. Uh, wow. That way, you would, you, that way everybody still is sitting in their theater seats and their, their feet are firmly planted on the floor, but the whole theater is moving, okay? You feel mm-hmm. like you're getting picked up and jostled around, okay? So uh, that was a real interesting uh, te- technical challenge, and um, it required you know multiple visits during the early design period of the facility with walkthroughs and stuff, taking a look at the floor, taking a look at the foundation, looking what's underneath the building, what's up on on the ceiling, what's behind the stage, you know, really getting familiarized with what's already there. And one wants to be able to use as much of the stuff that's already there uh, in place and be able to incorporate it into the show. So we wouldn't, like, go in and put in all brand new lighting, okay? We would go sure. and look at the lighting that's in there and go, okay, we can change these lights and we can move these lights and, you know, these ones are fine. We don't have to do anything with them. And what that does is uh, it keeps the the cost down and also it uh, it helps the schedule too because I'm not having to spend time uh, with a lighting uh, construct contractor in there installing 100 lights when all they need to really do is 20. Mm-hmm. And we were on a really strict... Uh, you know, schedule. Basically, the opening date was already prescribed by court. Right. Yeah, there wasn't really any room for sliding there, so you really had to make it as efficient as you possibly could. Right. A lot of fun, though. It was a great show. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, every I could just think about that effect with the rats and my skin crawls a little bit. It was really effective. (laughs) Now, that was your first, like, film theater-based attraction as far as I'm aware. No. But it no. definitely... Oh, okay. No. Uh, the uh, the first one that been involved in film was actually Tokyo Disneyland's um, uh, From Time oh. to Time, the Visionarium. Right. Uh, Visionarium, yeah. And that was um, taking the show that was done for Paris and making it Japanese. Hmm. And that was really fun. It was... A, a real challenge, and a lot of people didn't think that we would be able to take this film, which um, was, of course, all in French. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, and doing uh, Japanese voiceover for it and make it all work. And it, you know, it starred, uh, oh, like, uh, well, Depardieu, uh famous French uh, you know actor, was uh, the lead in it, and um, other famous uh, European and, and English uh, actors and actresses were in the film. So um, what it did was it, it re- required a, a, uh, a rewrite of the dialogue script because when you say something in French, it doesn't easily translate to Japanese and it have maybe the same meaning. Jokes is a, uh, is a great example. The French will get a joke. And the Japanese will not understand what that joke means because they have no uh, reference point. You know, something's only funny if, if you... Um, have a reference point to to judge it against, and then you can see whether it's you know silly or ludicrous or or, or you know just plain funny. So there were mm-hmm. a- aspects of the script that had to be uh, tweaked, so the Japanese audience would laugh the same as as the French audience would laugh. Huh. So that was a unique challenge, and also casting the Japanese um, voice talent really was um, a difficult thing to go through because. Needed to find 
uh, a voice that, in a sense, almost kind of matched what the the French person kind of sounded like. And we were very fortunate to be able to find some wonderful, wonderful actors in Japan that uh, uh, really matched the dialogue to the uh, original actor's lips. <laughs> no small feat, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it just can't be, you know, the lips are, are, are talking over here, and then the dialogue is over here doing, saying something else, you know? Right. Uh, and I think one of the crowning achievements of that show was when you actually watched it, um, Depardieu was speaking Japanese. You saw it coming out of his lips. Wow, that's really impressive. Yeah, but it was really to the talent of the, of, of the voice uh, actor mm-hmm. was cast for that role. Right. What was your role in working on uh, the Visionarium and, and the film? Well, I was part of the project management team. So, okay. uh, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not an artist. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I don't like story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't make rocks. <laughs> uh, no, project management is, is, uh, is what I do. And what that does is it, of course, it reaches across all the different uh, talents, and you know, having to uh, you know put together uh, a coordinated effort plan that everyone can follow and follow through with it. Mm-hmm. And also, right. you know, you got to watch the money too. <clears throat> sure. Yeah, you have to juggle a lot of those pieces. Yeah. If we can jump back to Epcot for just a little bit, and then we can we kind of move on from the the specific details, but. I love fountains. It's just a thing with me. If there's a fountain someplace, I'm happy. And yeah. I think you had worked on the Epcot Interactive Fountain and the Communicore Fountain. Was that the installation of those, or was it changes to the design? Um, I'm not familiar enough with the history of Epcot to know when those were installed or anything. Actually, it was kind of interesting. Um, uh, I worked on it uh, completely uh, from California side. Really? Yeah, and I, uh, when I went and actually saw it for the first time, it was already running. Wow. You see, sometimes you, you work on projects, and you're only working a certain portion or aspect of it, and then it moves on. Other people get assigned for whatever reason. You know, somebody comes off of another project, and, and they say, okay, we want Joe to do this. He's going to take over, you know, this aspect of something. It happens all the time. So it's actually especially with, with different projects that were going on around the world, it was very rare for people to, to follow an attraction from a womb to tomb. Mm-hmm. And also, if you're just an artist, okay, uh, you're, you're only going to be involved when they need you the most. And if you're a, a, a lighting designer, you know, you're going you're gonna to be coming in and doing a design during a specific part of, of the creative process and then you walk away and you're doing design on something else. And then like a year later, you're back on the project doing the installation, overseeing the installation. So, you know, it's just not, you're just not like sitting in the project um, from beginning to end. That's an exception rather than the norm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So with these, were you involved, was it one of the exceptions where you were involved beginning to end or were you just in a certain part of it for the fountains? Well, the Tokyo stuff, I was I was involved from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. But with the Florida projects, um, it was different. You know, different management of that portfolio. They they shuffled people around a bit more, maybe. 
Okay. And, uh, and then also Disney's uh, also had a uh, a theme park that was being planned for uh, Virginia at the time. Right, that was the Disney's America, something along right. those lines. That it? Okay. There were people working on that also. Um, that was another portfolio. At one time, we had uh, we had Paris, we had Disney's America, the Studio Tour, we had Epcot, and, and the stuff that was happening at Epcot. Uh, Magic Kingdom was kind of like the poor stepchild. <laughs> <laughs> it was built, and they didn't plan on doing anything in there for for a bit because they were basically building out Walt Disney World. Right. And then um, then you had California. And uh, there was a couple of different things that went on in California. Well, one was the Long Beach Project mm-hmm. with the Queen Mary. And uh, that was actually really the the very beginning of what ended up being Tokyo Disney Sea in some aspects because it was going to be like an Epcot at the sea. And it was going to be uh, more environmentally themed and, uh, you know, uh, something that was modernistic, but also had these elements of of the sea uh, incorporated into it. That actually ended up going through a couple of different looks and feels before it got canceled. Hmm. And then, of course, you had Tokyo also. And then you had special projects, like, um, for example, the Disney Store. The very first Disney Store actually was designed by Imagineering. Really? I had no idea. Yeah. Huh. So you, 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 you could end up... <laughs> Working a lot of different stuff. <laughs> so you know, I was involved in Communicorp Fountain probably about for three months, and that was about it. And that was hmm. the very the very beginning of the planning of it, uh, the interactive part. You know. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and where did the special projects fit into things like the Broadway production of Beauty and the Beast and Disneyland's 35th and birthday and that sort of thing? Well, those are, for example, the Beauty and the Beast thing. We would get stuff that would come from corporate and they would say, we're thinking about doing a Broadway production. And we go, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we want to base it on like Beauty and the Beast or, um, so what can we do? You know, well, so there's a series of brainstorming meetings that um, a a creative director is chosen to oversee it. And um, there's artwork that's done. I did the preliminary schedule for it, how it was going to, you know, basically all come together. You know, we got to, uh, you got to go through all the different phases of development and design and production. So I, I did the very first plan on how it's going to be done with all the different um, crafts involved and elements involved and the like. And that's another thing that, you know, I, after walking away from it in the very beginning and then coming back and actually seeing it 10 years later, you know, that's amazing. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. Well, I don't go to New York that often, so. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> But um, the Disneyland stuff, you know, the park would approach uh, Imagineering and say, you know, like, uh, we have this big birthday coming up. What can we do to um, spruce up the park? So there would be a bunch of different, uh, you know, brainstorming meetings, concept art put on the wall. We can do the uh, the circle theater. Have you ever wanted to share something with someone just because? Well, we do a lot. So we started a podcast about, well, whatever we want. My name is Joyce. And I'm her lovely husband, Al. Uh, Well, you know what I mean. And we're the hosts of the Disneyland podcast, Tales from the Mouse House. And the Amazing Race podcast. 
Fast Forward. And I'm one of the co-hosts of the MASH 4077th podcast. And you'd think with all of these podcasts, we'd run out of things to share. But then you'd be wrong. In our new show, Just Because, we're going to share all the things that, well, just don't fit into any of our other podcasts. Yep, like videos of our puppy Kate as she plays with the water bottle. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe some episodes chatting about one of our favorite TV shows. Like Lost? Uh Uh-huh. Or maybe an audio play Al has written. And we'll even have episodes contributed by others who have something to share but just don't want to start their own podcast. You never know what you'll find on this show. Why? Just because. Visit us at justbecausepodcast.com and in iTunes. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Mark Hickson for being my guest, and to you for listening. If you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity and would like to share a positive story, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY anytime 24 hours a day. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, let me know. If you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience or had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or if you've had any special Disney experience you want to share, I'd love to hear from you too. Maybe you've got a special memory from Splash Mountain, or you've been to Tokyo Disneyland, or you're like me and you really like the fountains at Epcot as well and you want to talk about that and just say thank you, or anything please email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. And now I can finally announce that Stories of the Magic is available in the Xbox Music Store so you can listen on your Windows phone. Welcome to any new listeners we have on their Windows phones. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else that you listen to the show and can rate it. Those ratings really help make the podcast more visible so it's easier for people to find. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode as well. Please like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash stories of the magic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google Plus. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic. Finally, this episode has been brought to you by Leaving Conformity Coaching. If you're looking for more joy, passion, and purpose in your life, let me help you break free from your limiting, performance-based natural identity and embrace your supernatural kingdom identity. To find out more about how I can help you, access some free resources, and read my blog, Faith and the Magic Kingdom, visit leavingconformitycoaching.com stories. Finally, don't forget to enter for a chance to win an unforgettable Disneyland Resort vacation, including one night in the Disneyland Dream Suite for up to six guests. Just go to storiesofthemagic.com slash Disneyland Sweeps to sign up and enter. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories, and this tale continues next time. 
You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.